Welcome to the Battleground Wisconsin. My name is Matt Brusky, and I'm the Deputy Director here at Citizen Action, and welcome to another week from Wisconsin. We have a full panel, but Rebecca Lynch is not with us. She is still in Ireland having a great time on vacation. She'll be back after Labor Day weekend. We look forward to her return. But we have, for a second week in a row, a special guest panel, Claire Zaki from Citizen Action. Claire, good to have you here. Thank you. Excited to be back. Two weeks in a row. We'll tell you why we have Claire. Not only was she great last week, but we are going to talk some more health care in depth and since Claire leads our healthcare program, we figured we'd have her on uh, to have a great discussion with her and Robert about some news. Robert Craig is also with us. I previewed there, our executive director. Robert, good to have you this morning. Good morning, everyone. So, folks, it is Labor Day weekend coming up, and we want to remind everyone of how there's events that go on throughout the state all weekend actually around Labor Day and then tons of events on Monday Labor Day weekend and we want to encourage people to get out support labor right it's uh, absolutely critical that we continue uh, to grow the labor movement here but uh, important weekend and we wanted to start the show by noting that um, go to the state AFL-CIO website. We'll have a link there. They have uh, a list of all the different opportunities for you this Labor Day weekend. But uh, get out. So lots of stuff want to talk about. We're going to talk about Sean Duffy stepping down. It's big news. We're going to talk health care. Mark Pocan actually started talking about health care. Uh, this week in an interview was talking about the importance of health care in the 2020 election. So we'll, we're going to talk more about that, especially we are happy to have Claire to dive into that conversation. Um, we're going to talk also about the flare-up around the lame duck session and uh, the legislation that essentially lim uh, limited the Attorney General's powers, and Josh Call has been navigating that this week. That made news. We're also going to be joined by our member, Trisha Zunker. She is a school board member in Wausau and has been spearheading an effort statewide to get public schools to retire the native mascots. And so we're thrilled to have her on to talk more about that effort that continues. But, folks, Duffy, Sean Duffy, he has uh, been the congressman from the 7th District, which is Almost all of Northwest Wisconsin. This has been huge news this week. He's going to step down uh, next month. Uh, the The public announcement is around. Um, he has a large family, nine kids. I believe th either this will be the ninth or the tenth uh, child that'll be coming, and has uh, what sounds like a very serious medical condition. So uh, he will be stepping down. I don't want to get into any of that. I want to get into just getting both of your initial thoughts. This is a huge opportunity. Um, let's not kid anyone. This is still a Republican district. This is a district that reflects gerrymandering in the state. Uh, this is the area that Dave Obie used to represent. It is not exactly the same district Dave Obie represented. Um, it is uh, essentially solidly Republican. I think it moved to lean to likely Republican uh, in the Cook Report. So from likely to, uh, no, from... Uh, solid to like to likely. I think likely. it went from solid yeah. to likely. That's likely. right, that's the word. So I don't want to like tell anyone that suddenly this is, hey, it's an open seat, anyone can win. But anytime there is an open seat, it does present opportunity. And this is an election cycle where Trump's on the ballot. It's going to be a mandate on what's happening in this country. And this is a district that Trump won handily, but has also economically really been struggling uh, so, thoughts, Claire. We're going to go to you first oh. as our guest. 
your immediate thoughts when you heard that Duffy was going to retire? And essentially, where do you see this going? Or where, what, what would you like to see happen here in this race? <laughs> Uh, so my first thought when uh, when I heard this news is that anytime there is an open seat, people just come out of the woodwork, especially when it's a seat that's been been held by one person for a long time. And uh, and we know that he, that before Sean Duffy, like you said, it was Dave Obie who had been there for a really long time as well. Um, and so when every time there's a sort of a long held open seat um, that comes up people just get really excited and and I, and I think we saw that with this announcement right immediately there was just tons of speculation and tons of conversation happening amongst our members happening online um, and I think it's going to be really really interesting to see who puts their hand up in this race and and Robert you know a little bit more about this district than than I do well Tom Tiffany put his hand up right away on the Republican side. <laughs> Yeah, he seems like he'll be in, uh, like, I think he was in yesterday. <laughs> Very eager, Robert. Claire was saying, yeah, your thoughts. Yeah, the, the, the right-wing anti-environmentalist of the North Woods, oh, uh, Mr. Tiffany, he's, he's special. Uh, you know, we, this is a, a Republican district, but it is about similar in performance to the one that Connor Lamb won in Pennsylvania at the heart of the Trump care, anti-Trump care backlash and the resistance. So it is feasible. You'd need a very strong candidate on the Democratic side. And Tom Tiffany would probably be a very vulnerable candidate. So if that's going to be their person, then it's a potentially winnable race. But you've got to have a candidate who's going to raise really millions of dollars. And so to progressives out there who are against big money politics, I agree with you. But if you want to win this race, you're not going to do it just knocking on doors and raising $100,000. And so there are, it would have to be in two different scenarios. One is someone who can raise that kind of money through traditional means, and there are some candidates potentially could run that could, or better if possible, nationalizing the race and exciting a progressive base, the kind of progressive base that funded Connor Lamb, uh, that funded uh, the Georgia uh, governor's race, for example, um, and also, uh, quite frankly, very successfully against Ted Cruz when Beto O'Rourke challenged him. He had a, got a national fundraising base. That's why he even thinks he can run for president. And so that means being exciting and dynamic and making people think they have a stake in it. Seeing it happen, it could probably, I think Evers, if he's shrewd on this, will schedule it for the April primary when we have massive Democrat turnout in the presidential primary, which also would give us a shot. Uh, but we just got to make a difference between who's going to put up a noble fight and who's actually going to be serious about winning this race in our corrupt big money political system. Yeah, and I would add, because I'm always thinking about health care, right, um, I think that this is a moment where health care on both the state and federal level is going to be a primary electoral issue. And I think um, this, this open seat coinciding with the presidential election and, to Robert's point, ideally with the presidential primary um, could um, provide an opportunity for a Democratic or progressive candidate to leverage that health care narrative in that race to say, um, you know, this is an issue on the national level. Our district deserves to be a part of it. And then to also be able to point to Senator Tiffany not necessarily being a champion of health care in, in his uh, legislative that would be an record. An in understatement, the state. <laughs> kind of a, I'd call him kind of a caveman on health care. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but so it could be a point to both bite into this national narrative and to distinguish yourself as somebody who could be a fighter and a champion for the people on the issue that, that folks really, really care about right now. Yeah, and this is going to be a special election. And that 
also puts it in play because turnout will matter a lot more. Whose base is more mobilized? Who's energized? Robert, you mentioned if it's obviously during the Democratic presidential primary, uh, that that should be helpful. So we're going to keep an eye on this. There's a number of folks in. I think, Robert, you laid it out. Uh, there's a couple of scenarios where this could go. I think either one could potentially win, but I really do think um, if you could have a candidate who could mobilize the base in a special election, um, that is going to matter greatly. So, But um, I want to, before we go to a break, start a conversation, and part of why, why we have Claire here is we want to talk deeper about health care. Um, in Rebecca's absence, we thought this would be an excellent time to do that because Mark Pocan had some comments this week that um, are worth noting, and we thought we thought that actually there was some there's some good, and maybe a little wrong in some of his comments. So we wanted to talk about that. Um, Pocan mentioned uh, in talking about um, the previous congressional seat, saying that he thought it was winnable potentially. It's open; anything could happen. Um, he got into the conversation of healthcare as an issue and saying that. This is going to be the defining issue. And he said he thinks that it's a critical issue in the um, presidential primary, but he was a little concerned at some of the details and infighting and really wanted us and wanted the Democrats to focus, focus on talking about it as a value and really not getting into the details. Um, so, Claire, I want to get your thoughts um, on what Mr. Pocan is saying. He, and he mentions specifically, he talks about focusing on the idea that we need to make sure everybody has access to healthcare and in that. Thoughts, because um, I know it seems like we're a little past just access, right? I, and, and, and there needs to be a broader value. He's right about values maybe, but could you take it from there? Sure, yeah, so I think by starting with values is not a bad place, right? I mean, Congressman Procan's values are beyond reproach. I mean, heck, the man is a co-chair of the Progressive Caucus in Congress, right? I mean, he is he is an ultimate ally um, and, and I think will likely continue to be so on healthcare. Um, I think the, the, I the issue that I take sometimes about the way we talk about healthcare is more of a, um, a, a nuance of language, right? But, but that I think language matters, right? Um, and when specifically when it comes to the term access, I think we leave ourselves um, vulnerable to um, not taking bold action and not taking comprehensive reform if we only focus on access, right? Republicans talk about access all the time. We heard about this at the at, during the Medicaid expansion, Badger Care expansion conversation. Members of the Joint Finance Committee were saying people have access to cheap health care plans. Um, yeah, so I can physically go and buy. I have access to the marketplace. I can physically do that. It is available to me. It doesn't mean that I can actually afford to take to avail myself of the benefits of, of that plan. It doesn't mean that I can actually afford to pay for health care, and therefore I won't actually receive any health care. So instead of talking about access, I think we need to be talking about actually receiving health care. On that note, we are going to take a quick break. We're going to pick up this conversation on the back end of this break. You are listening to The Battleground Wisconsin, where Citizen Action, you can find us at citizenactionwi.org. Welcome back to the Battleground Wisconsin. We're Citizen Action. We are talking health care. Not a shocker there. Um, but it is, again, resurfaced itself. It continues to be one of the, prime, you know, the defining issues in this presidential election. And we were talking about some comments about Mark Pocan 
um, wanting Democratic candidates to really focus on the broader value of access to health care. And, and Claire, before the break, was saying how we agree on the talking about a broader value and not necessarily getting mired in the details. There are some important details, and access doesn't quite cover it. Uh, well, Rob, I, Claire, I wanted to give you an opportunity if you had any other thoughts before Robert chimes in. Yeah, I think Robert on the same page, so yeah. I'll, I'll let him uh, say his piece and then maybe riff off of it. There you go. So I think Mark, Congressman Pocan, was speaking at a Rotary Club, so this wasn't a prepared remark, so sure. he may have defaulted sure. to some old language, uh, but it's still worth talking about. Yeah. Um, he had two really things. He first, when he said we should talk about health care as a value, he was saying we shouldn't tear each other apart as Democrats. He was talking about the presidential race. Yep. And he was talking around the same time that Joe Biden released a, a biographical ad that was beautifully made that was about, you know, his first, first wife and part of his family were killed in an auto accident when he, was, uh, when he was first elected to the U.S. Senate. And then, of course, very well known, his, one of his sons, uh, who was kind of his heir apparent, was the attorney general in Delaware, uh, died of cancer. And he was an Iraq war vet. So it had a lot of moving things about that talked about his role in Obamacare, had a lot of pictures of him and Barack Obama together, but then kind of made a, it more than kind of, it did say that those who want to radically change the system or those who want to tear it apart were the problem. And so it put it, Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren in the same court as Donald Trump. And so it's really getting heated right now. And there's a difference between, I think, policy decisions, the difference that don't matter and ones that do. And the difference between Biden's health care plan, which is enhancing the ACA to some degree, versus going to a fully public system is such a big difference that I don't think Mark is correct. And he might not say this, he was in front of us, because he was just speaking to the Rotary Club, to say that that, is, that, that that is just covered by the value of health care, especially when he threw in, as Claire pointed out, access, which is, of course, we want health care. Health care is a right. There's not some right to some sort of formal access. And remember, conservatives think access means, well, scoop you up off the street and bring you to the emergency room. They call that access. Ronald Reagan called it access. Well, that's, an, that's Claire, I'll let you go off that. That's a really important point because the Republicans and Claire, you mentioned this. Access is their term to some extent. And, right, anyone can walk into an emergency room, right, like and access health care. So to some extent, and by the way, Robert, that ad that you mentioned, John Mako could run a very similar ad, right? He's gone through and his family have gone through tremendous medical experiences and could talk important, talks passionately about the right to having access and how critical this is to everyone. That's a state rep from Green state Bay. State rep from Green everyone. Bay, right? But yet has a radically different solution, you know, private system that doesn't even include accepting Medicaid money. So... So that value doesn't quite cut through, Claire. Yeah, and I wanted to to reinforce what what I said earlier, right? Which is that um, you know Congressman Pocan is is a champion of of having I almost said access, right? Of of, <laughs> of having um, affordable health care and high quality health care for everybody, right? I mean, he is, I believe, a co-sponsor of the Medicare for All um, bill in Congress, right? So this is not about questioning anyone's values. I think this is an opportunity to elevate the fact that it is so ingrained in us to use words like access. I mean, heck, I am like, talking about this issue, and I almost just said it right now, yep. um, right? That that I think is just an interesting opportunity 
to point to and say, we can fundamentally change the way we talk about this so that we um, aren't using somebody else's language and in fact are using language that is more appropriate for our values to the congressman's point and that's more appropriate to the solutions that we are trying to propose. And language is so powerful and, and we can really have an opportunity to, to use our words in a very deliberate way that, that is helpful for our cause. And let me push back a little bit on what Congressman Spokane said. He might have a very a more, more nuanced position if we had him sure. on the show, sure, which we sure. could do. It is He's always the welcome. idea that it's not constructive to have this health care debate. To some degree, it's not. So maybe this is what he's pointing to. We've had the alleged moderates, like Mr. Hickenluber and the former congressman from Maryland. Um, and we've had now Biden kind of using Republican attacks on Medicare for all, talking about people losing coverage they like and losing control and freedom. That's the Republican attack, as Bernie Sanders has pointed out. So that is problematic. So maybe Mark's talk, Congressman Focan is talking about that. Uh, but on the other level, since Medicare for all has dominated this debate right, in the presidential race, and in, back in 2016, it was seen as an outlier, like oh, that just that Bernie Sanders runs on it. Now it has a huge place in the party, right? Coming through with a nominee on the top issue that actually has a consensus among Democratic voters on the top issue is critical not only to winning in the fall, but to governing. In other words, if we sweep this under the rug, we're going to have a large part of the Democratic Party appalled if it's President Biden and he's just tweaking the ACA. And on the other hand, if we don't have a clear mandate for Medicare for all and we have a President Sanders or Warren, for example, or the attempted middle position of Kamala Harris, uh, then we'll also have division on the other side. So this is the time to get Democrat unity by having the debate and seeing where Democrat voters actually are on this issue. Well, that was an excellent discussion. And uh, we have to, unfortunately, let Claire go. <laughs> Claire has a very important call she needs to get on, but we really appreciate you taking the time to join us and have this conversation because we agree with you. This is a critical point. So I appreciate you letting me get on my soapbox about yeah. the importance of language. Yeah. Yeah. No, <laughs> Say hi great. to Congressman Pocan. Yeah. Just, kid, just <laughs> yeah. kidding. No, this, is, this, this was a great conversation. We really appreciate it. Uh, and with that, um, Robert, we are going to carry on our conversation. Healthcare is clearly uh, central to this debate, and it is one of the reasons why People's Action and Citizen Action as a member uh, in the People's Action Network are really super interested in having the we're having these forums around the country with presidential Democratic presidential candidates to talk about issues like health care, to talk about issues that are in our platform and on our agenda that actually ferret out some of the differences between these candidates. And Robert, our first one's actually going to be in Iowa on Saturday. September 19th, excuse me, Saturday, September 21st. Let's get the, let's get the date right there, uh, in Des Moines, Iowa. And uh, it's going to be available to Citizen Action members, and obviously if you're listening to the show, uh, to come. We're trying to get at least 50 folks to go, and we'll be uh, taking folks from Green Bay, Eau Claire, and Milwaukee, and Wausau. And that's because it's moved by our national network that we're, we're a member of, People's Action, and our counterparts in Iowa that are part of People's Action, Iowa CCI, are hosting the forum. So this is something that, that because Iowa is such an important state, that our Citizen Action Wisconsin members have access to as a benefit of membership either to go in person or to be able to see an exclusive feed of the debate as well. So, yeah, there will be four debates. We're going to have, they're not the forums, 
Oh, the first one will be in Iowa. Then we're going to have three in October that will be in um, Nevada, Detroit, and uh, Connecticut. Uh, New Hampshire, excuse New me. New Hampshire, Hampshire, Matt, please. New Hampshire, not Connecticut. Uh, of course, New Hampshire. All those New England states, they, <laughs> yeah. they look alike. So this is, uh, we'll have opportunities. They'll all be streamed. Um, we'll make those available so folks can know exactly how they can join and watch those. Um, we will have, uh, in a number of the regions of the state where we have our organizing co-ops, we'll have watch parties uh, for these events. And we really want to encourage uh, our members and folks to get out and actually pay attention to the nuances, what these differences are, because there's a critical opportunity here with this presidential. Robert, you've mentioned it. This is the most diverse field of candidates we've ever had in terms of backgrounds, but also just where they are on policy. And and certainly the best opportunity we've had potentially to legitimately elect potentially a progressive who could win the presidential. So there's and a lot at stake here, and right? And just think and of the shift in the spectrum. In, in 2008, it was around an Obamacare-like solution because he and, uh, and Hillary Clinton were in relatively the same place as was John Edwards. Now that's the right flank, yeah. okay? And it's left of that, right? And you go, you go to people who want a pathway to Medicare for all, like Buttigieg, you, and people who want a kind of Medicare Advantage, Medicare for all system, like Kamala Harris, all the way to the Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth uh, uh, Warren position, which is, why would you have insurance companies anyway? They're just there to deny care and to make windfall profits for Wall Street. Why don't we cut them out like we do in, Medi- in traditional Medicare? want to also make our listeners aware of one other big event we have coming up, and that is Thursday, September 19th in Milwaukee. We're doing our annual Citizen Action Brewfest fundraiser. It is uh, same location last year, the Coakley Brothers, which is on uh, South, uh, South, 4th, South 4th Street, I believe. Um, we'll have all the details on the website, but uh, 5 to 8. Again, we're going to have a silent auction. We have lots of great items that you can win, including an opportunity to uh, see uh, a famous actress from... 400 South 5th Street. <laughs> 400 South Don't 5th. Go there you go. Street. Don't go to 4th Street. 400 South 5th Street on <laughs> Thursday, September 19th, 5 to 8 p.m. We would love to see you there. Yeah, it's going to be a great time. And uh, again, silent auction should be fun. Lots of good locally sourced brew, union brew. We'll have other types of drink too. But we got to take a break. Again, you're listening to the Battleground Wisconsin. We're Citizen Action. You can find us at citizenactionwi.org. Welcome back to the Battleground Wisconsin. We're Citizen Action. Robert, we need to talk about media in our state. The media environment is constantly changing, i.e. consolidating. <laughs> but there's uh, been some, some new media that has come to Wisconsin in the last few months in the name of the Wisconsin Examiner, which has been doing, I would, uh, I think, really good investigative journalism, talking about a lot of stories that definitely have, I would argue, come from a progressive sort of value-based system, but phenomenal journalism. Well, this, uh, this entry has not been well-received by the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel, and a, a hat tip to Bruce Murphy for calling them out. But there was an That's art- the guy who leads yeah, Urban, Urban Milwaukee. Milwaukee. He's a longtime uh, journalist uh, around here. 
He uh, rightly calls out the Journal Sentinel for the story that they did on August 20th, but there's been there's other columns and other times that they have talked about the Examiner, and every time they talk about it as, as though it's not journalism, that it's just a liberal, partisan, sort of hackery newspaper, uh, and, and essentially describes it as a political website as opposed to something that has hired legitimate journalists, journalists who've worked in this state, both in mainstream and other media, but legitimate media. Um, and quite frankly, the Journal Sentinel's been getting scooped a ton by the Examiner. Um, and I think it just seems like uh, they're just upset about that. Robert, I know you have a lot of thoughts on this. Well, just to say a little more about the Examiner, it's, it's a nonprofit uh, progressive news website dedicated to capital news. So it is trying to dig up stories. We have very little capital reportage right now of any kind. In fact, we have more from Wisconsin Public Radio than most places. And there's also a shift towards nonprofit journalism with the kind of demise of for-profit journalism like the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel, which those newsrooms have been shrinking, shrieking, shrieking uh, by an alarming rate. So, I mean, nonprofit journalism, you know, would be some of the national progressive magazines. Your progressive magazine in these times, the nation, would be nonprofits. They, uh, they might sell advertising, but they're, they're structured as nonprofits and look for grants and funders so they can be independent. And the Wisconsin Examiner has very good journalists. The uh, leading editor is, uh, is Ruth Conniff, who was the editor-in-chief for the Progressive magazine uh, for a number of years. Eric Gunn, who's a very well-respected journalist. Melanie Conklin, who also is as well and was with the Isthmus and Wisconsin State Journal. And Isaiah Holmes, who is a young African-American journalist Amazing who I have a journalist. lot of yeah. respect for and have been talking to for a long time. He started at this small thing in, in nonprofit news site in Milwaukee called the Neighborhood News Service. And so this is a good group of journalists, and the Journal Sentinel, which obviously feels threatened, has not only, according to Bruce Murphy, looks like there's circumstantial evidence, stolen some of their stories and repackaged <laughs> yes. them, but taken all sorts of snipes at them and has made them equivalent to the McIver Institute. And we know right-wing things like the McIver Institute, just, they're not, they're not anything we call journalism. These are these are progressives, but they are journalists, and they actually uh, report facts, right? And we have already, I don't know, I've been contacted more by uh, the Wisconsin Examiner this year. They've only been up since uh, early July than I have by the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel, I can tell you that. Yeah, and I mean, Robert, you brought up the point that they have been constantly using stories broken in the Examiner, and you described it These are good stealing. journalists. I know, well, that's what's so amazing about it, that they've been getting scooped. They've actually been writing and, and using stories that they got there, and then to just sort of slam them this way is, uh, it's unbelievable, especially given the lack of, we don't really have an active media here. I mean, it. you mentioned that we're better maybe than some other states. Public radio here has certainly still has significant uh uh, news gathering capacity, but like, let's get real. There, there isn't significant news gathering, particularly print. It's, it's, it's increasingly if you if you don't get covered by Gannett or AP, you know, you're often there just isn't coverage. Yeah, Gannett owns the Journal Sentinel, all the papers in Northeast Wisconsin, Green Bay, Appleton, mm -hmm. Oshkosh, and the others, Sheboygan, Matwalk and all the ones in North Central, Wausau, Wisconsin, Rapid, Stevens Point. And they all have the two uh, Capital News Bureau people that work for the Journal Sentinel, okay? And then, and, and they're both good journalists, but given how much they have to cover, 
they're mostly reduced to simply covering what Robin Voss said, what Evers said in response. There is really not much investigation. There is occasionally both the, both the reporters at the Journal Center are certainly capable of it, but they're they're trying to deliver what's the daily story or two that should be seen in all these right. papers across the state, and that's not that's a different thing. And so I'm not saying that that's a bad thing, but I'm saying that adding more journalists and more news coverage is good for democracy because the only way to hold elected officials accountable is for the fourth estate journalism to be digging things up and asking them questions, right? So we're going to continue to follow the examiner. I, I got to tell you, I check it daily and we're reposting things that they, that they have on their uh, site on our Facebook page where we think that they're doing, you know, really good stories. So we're going to continue to support them. I encourage you to check them out. You can go check out their website uh, they're putting new content up every day. But before uh, we go to the break, we have to talk about what's been going on with our attorney general and the fallout from the lame duck, duck session last year where lawmakers reduced, let's be blunt, the Republican leadership and all Republicans uh, basically took away powers from the governor and the attorney general. And that is starting to play out this week, um, this month with the attorney general and uh, the legislative leadership. And it produced a bizarre scenario this week where they had a closed-door meeting and couldn't really explain why they were all there. Robert, this is the logical uh, conclusion or situation we're going to end up in with something like the lame duck that has a complete lack of clarity on how it should be implemented. Well... And it was ratified by the right-wing politicians in robes that brands itself as the Wisconsin State Supreme Court. And so these, these bills were rushed together, rushed through in a desperate effort to try to limit the powers of a new Democratic governor. None of these laws were seen as important or necessary when there was a Republican governor. And I assume if they get a Republican governor and they select a legislature, they will change them and a Republican attorney general. And one of the more pernicious which is really designed to keep us in the Texas lawsuit, Matt, the one that would take away all of the Affordable Care Act, pre-existing condition protections, all the subsidies, everything else. They were trying to keep us in that lawsuit. And Josh Call and Tony Evers got out of it because there was a couple days there where the uh, law had been struck down by a lower court before the Wisconsin Supreme Court re-ratified it. And so we have a weird situation now where the attorney general, as any other attorney generals, Josh Call can can enter lawsuits, file them, but he can't settle them without the permission of the legislature, which is unprecedented, and it's holding things up. And the big thing that's holding things up is, is that there is a lawsuit regarding Purdue Pharma, one of the, the roguish um, you know, pharmaceutical companies that literally is a business practice, got people addicted to opiates, right? And there's a whole $12 billion potential multi-state settlement, but he needs them to agree. There are multiple states involved, multiple attorney generals, so the information in the lawsuit, it's a settlement, okay, so there's going to be confidentiality requirements, right, um, that he wants them, uh, they let the, the joint findings committee to sign non-disclosure agreements, and the Republicans refuse. And so, By the way, though, Robert, first, Darling and Nigren agreed, the co-chairs of the joint right. finance, to sign these and then backed away. Right. Further revealing the political nature of this. And by the way, let me just point out, yeah. there's no evidence of this yet. Maybe the Wisconsin Examiner will dig it up. But 
Yeah. Purdue Pharma has lots of money. Yes. Other business interests do. So the fact that these legislators, this is an opportunity for corruption, uh, might not be influenced by the case because they can hold it up in perpetuity, any case. And so who knows? There's a case in guarding a company that uh, sold faulty software to a state agency. Well, maybe they're well-connected and maybe they're contributing to Robin Voss. Who knows? I'm just, I don't have evidence of that. I'm just pointing out it's another opportunity of corruption. And under open meetings laws, even though they can go into closed session, it's still an open record. Yeah. And they're still under Wisconsin law and there's no, 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 pro, there's no uh, prohibition on them talking about it. Why would other attorney generals and the lawyers Purdue Pharma agree to let it all leak in Wisconsin and violate the terms of the settlement, right? And maybe maybe for, forfeit all the $12 billion. So this is, again, horrendous government. Uh, John Nygren, uh, co-chair of Joint Finance, is claiming, oh, this is more democratic because we're more involved. Josh Call is elected as the state's leading attorney. They're not elected for this, right? And they're so partisan. This isn't about some sort of check for bad practice where they just go along, right? This is about them mucking around for political reasons in the state's legal business um, without law licenses for the most part, and certainly not any kind of, even if they have some law license to pre practice real estate law, a couple of them, not to engage in these sorts of lawsuits. So again, horrendous, corrupt government, uh, part of the part and parcel of the power grab that we saw in the lame duck. And Republicans are about power and they're about undermining democracy. Modern Republicans, the people who've taken over that, the once grand old party of Lincoln. Yeah, this is, um, you, first of all, Robert, you brought up the point that this is more, that they brought up this is more democratic. This is absurd. Call was elected statewide. These jokers were elected from gerrymandered districts. And by the way, not, as you mentioned, not elected to to be our, our fucking to be our attorney he'd general. He'd be violating his oath of office <laughs> and he'd be sanctionable by the bar if he disclosed confidential information. What is the check on them? There's no check unless they sign the non-disclosure agreement. Well, kudos to our attorney general call for trying to push forward, do this in a professional way. Oh, and one one quicker yeah. thought. Who else wants to know about the lawsuits? Which lobbyists want it want them to pass on the information? Yeah, it's all there's a lot in the soup. We'll continue to track this. we got to take a break. You're listening to The Battleground Wisconsin. We're Citizen Action. You can find us at citizenactionwi.org. Welcome back to The Battleground Wisconsin. Again, we're Citizen Action. You can find us at citizenactionwi.org. We are really excited about this next guest. Uh, we mentioned last week about the uh, movement that's been sweeping the state to retire Native American mascot logos and such with all of our Wisconsin schools. And Trisha Zunker has been leading that effort from Wausau. She's not only a member of our organizing co-op there, but in her own right, she is the president of the Wausau School Board. She's a member of the Ho-Chunk Nation and an associate justice on the Ho-Chunk Nation Supreme Court. Trisha, thanks so much for joining us. Hey, good morning, Matt. Thanks for having me. So we had you on once before and talking about this subject, but it is just taking off with these resolutions that started in Wauwatosa. Why don't you, Wauwatosa, Wausau, <laughs> uh, tell our listeners a little bit more about the resolution and why this is so important. 
Okay, well, maybe it would help to get a little bit of the background as well as why is WASA um, kind of leading this. That's perfect. And so the Wisconsin Association of School Boards, which um, I'll refer to going forward as WASB, um, they have an annual convention. It's in January every year. And school boards across the state can submit resolutions for um, all the boards to vote on. And the process is that the resolution has to be submitted by a specific deadline. This year it is September 15th. It then goes to a policy resolution committee, kind of gets worked on, you know, cleaning up any language. Maybe there's some that don't make it out. Um, But then in January it's voted on. Now, WASA School Board has not historically submitted resolutions. And um, we thought about this year. Now I am newly president since April and thought, well, let's use our collective voice as as an elected body and um, submit resolutions. So I had been talking to WASB on other matters. And because I knew we were talking about taking this step generally as a school board, I asked if this had ever been a resolution at the WASB convention because it is personally important to me. And I was very surprised to hear that, no, it had never been submitted as a resolution to their knowledge. So I drafted one. I brought it to my board. It was a unanimous vote in support. Part of the discussion did include seeking co-sponsorship. I do think my fellow board members thought I might just reach out to two or three. And I think maybe even I thought I might just reach out to two or three. But then it seemed to be, well, you know, let's kind of get different districts of different sizes around the state. And that's kind of how it started because Madison took it up right away the same day Sun Prairie did. And, of course, you know, Madison taking it up, that made news. Um, Milwaukee, it went through their policy uh, committee, and, of course, that made news. And then just a number of other districts have taken it up and have signed on as co-sponsors. So not only is it Madison, Sun Prairie, uh, but also La Crosse, Sheboygan, Shorewood, Prescott, Shawano, Wauwatosa, Appleton, most recently, last night, D.C. Everest, our direct neighbors um, here in Wausau, here in central Wisconsin. Milwaukee does have it on the regular board meeting tonight. I'm very hopeful that it will pass. I do see they have a recommendation that it will pass or that it should be um, voted in support of co-sponsorship. And a number of other districts still have it on their agendas before the September 15th deadline. Well, this is incredibly exciting that it appears, right, that there's uh, that this movement is ripe. Um, and, you know, unfortunately, still desperately needed. How many districts still use this type of imagery and, um, you know, that we have to continue to push to uh, get them to move on and, and retire this stuff? Well, unfortunately, out of the 421 public school districts in the state of Wisconsin, 31 districts still retain use of Native American mascots or otherwise some some sort of imagery. And it's unfortunate um, some districts just don't want to stir the pot and take a stand and um, to tell their fellow neighbors, you know, this makes us uncomfortable. We don't want our students exposed to it. Some people uh, rely on the local control argument. But... This has long left the realm of personal opinion. That is such an old argument because the research demonstrates, the peer-reviewed scientific research demonstrates how detrimental this, that having Native American mascots is to both Native students 
and non-Native students. So this is not even a matter of personal opinion. This is educational policy. What is best for our students is to eliminate race-based mascots. Can you talk a little bit, this is Robert Craig, um, what happened in the Walker era that it used to be possible to uh, simply petition the Secretary of Department of Public Instruction uh, to, to uh, act on this, but they made it much harder? And what, how did they do that, and what was behind that change? And who was behind it? I don't have the full history of what happened, because, yes, it is true that in 2010 there was legislation, and the students of Prescott School District were instrumental in that passing. And then, lo and behold, just three years later, it was um, essentially it was repealed. Um, and I don't really know the forces behind that, um, other than it was the wrong decision in 2013. Uh, there's definitely much, much, much more support than opposition. I've gotten a couple of not-so-pleasant emails from individuals around the state. And given the statewide news that this has made, um, getting a handful of emails is not unexpected, and it's actually quite a low number than I would expect. Um, but the arguments that I have mostly heard have just been the local control, wanting to leave it to people's local control, which, you know, it, that's such a puzzling argument. Why we would say, hey, let's let the decision of stereotyping an entire race of people fall in the hands of local control. That, to me, is absurd. It's a little reminiscent, quite frankly, of um, uh, the state's rights argument for allowing segregation and discrimination against African Americans. Absolutely. So you mentioned that there's still uh, over 30 uh, communities that are using this. Have you heard from any of them? What are, you know, the goal here, right? We want to get rid of this. Uh, what What are your thoughts? Do, uh, how, how do we feel is this going to hopefully lead to a number of them, if not all of them, uh, changing? Well, I haven't heard from any particular district. Uh, I am going to reach out to Mosinese School Board. They have the Indians up here um, in central Wisconsin and um, see if perhaps it's something they might be willing to take on again in 2017, their community and their student body petition to change the mascot. Um, earlier in that year, there was an article that ran in the Anago Daily Journal recounting a sporting event between Anago, whose mascot is the Red Robins, and Mosini, whose mascot is the Indians. And this was on January 25, 2017, in the Anago Daily Journal, the headline said, Red, Red Robins Scouts the Indians. Okay. Um, when we talk about history, that is, that is our history. So, uh, you know, you sometimes hear, oh, we're honoring. It's, we have history. That headline certainly captured it. And while it was certainly the fault of the publication for running that, the bigger fault is the district that maintains and retains the mascot. So the student body, um, the public the community wanted to change the mascot. The board did not choose to do that. Um, I think I'm going to reach out to them now that D.C. Everest, Nawasa, we, you know, we're, we're all neighbors up here, and see maybe it is an opportunity for them to have a discussion. So I haven't heard from any of these boards, but perhaps there are boards that are waiting, and maybe they've had a change in their board composition, and maybe now they are going to recognize that it is the time to change their mascots. And they they have 
some important interests to consider. Um, I was just speaking to somebody, a professor at UCLA Law School, yesterday on a different topic, uh, and I was talk- I brought this up, and she actually said something to me that was really interesting. And she said that, you know, with colleges and um, grad schools and professional schools just becoming much, much more competitive, it can come down to admissions looking at did this individual go to a high school that had a Native American mascot? Because there are certain assumptions that are made through no fault of the students that, oh, that's going to shape their thinking. It's going to maybe that make that individual less informed or community aware. And do we want that as part of our um, student population when, uh, you know, if it, it, it really comes down to something like that, it is hurting those students for so many reasons, but that is yet another one. So I thought that was interesting um, to have that conversation. I haven't had time to do a lot of research on that, but the schools that do retain these districts, they really, really need to just see that this is a matter of educational policy, and it will benefit their student bodies to make this change. Well, obviously, we agree with you 100%. We also are, are really excited that you took the time to join us and that this whole movement is regenerated. If a town, you know, a community like Shano, who's gone through this, can have a unanimous vote, uh, there's a lot of lessons to be learned for, uh, you know, the, the other communities, these 31 communities, um, to make these changes. So I really want to thank you for, for spurring and all the other leaders around the state that have been working on this, uh, re-sparking this conversation so that we can hopefully retire these, uh, these logos and mascots for good. Thank you so much, Tricia, for joining us. Absolutely. Thank you so much. And with that, we have to wrap up this Battleground Wisconsin. We want to thank our producer, Brian Woodridge, who makes it happen every week. And, of course, we want to thank Trisha Zunker for joining us. Uh, We will see you next week at the Battleground Wisconsin. Everybody have a great Labor Day weekend.